It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Matea reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Sunny ways, my friends. Sunny ways. Prime Minister who appeared to be hiding a bagel in his desk. And I uh, dressed up in an Aladdin costume. I heard her say a word that I know is distinctly unparliamentary. The word was F-A-R-T. Let's just say this is a little bit awkward. Drinking uh, water bottles out of uh, water out of uh, when we have water bottles uh, out of a plastic. Uh, sorry. 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 And I'm really sorry. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and the truth about this country. Today on the show, Catherine McKenna announced she's retiring from politics, and Parliament is finally adjourned after a chaotic few weeks. Everyone wants to know, does this mean we're going to have an election? And 751 more unmarked graves were found in Saskatchewan, and the best the country's leaders could do is send tone-deaf text messages and start a debate over our right to celebrate Canada Day. Joining me this week from Whitby, former Liberal MP Selena Caesar Chavan, the only one here who has been elected to federal office. Hey, Selena. There are some crosses that we all have to bear. <laughs> we also have Drew Brown, who's dreading the possibility of covering municipal elections at the same time as the federal one. I mean, we also had a provincial election this year, so like, let's just go for the hat trick. Why not? I can take it. <laughs> And finally, Jason Markasov is making his debut on the backbench. He's a writer at McLean's in Calgary, and I'm so excited he's finally here. Jazz hands in my hands. We have seen a level of obstructionism and toxicity in the House that is of real concern. There's always a back and forth in Parliament. There's always got to be debate and holding people to account, and we welcome that and continue to. But there's also uh, a time to work together. 
And that's certainly what we hope we're going to be seeing from uh, the other progressive parties, the NDP and the Bloc, as we move forward on passing some really important pieces of legislation today and tomorrow that will make a difference in the lives of Canadians. So I really, really do hate to say this, but all signs in Ottawa are pointing to us having a fall election. Catherine McKenna, the former environment minister who presided over the implementation of a national carbon price, announced she's retiring from politics just yesterday. She's the most high-profile person to step down in recent weeks. Meanwhile, Parliament has been completely chaotic as the government raced to pass a bunch of major bills and send them over to the Senate before they went on summer holiday. In case you didn't know, any government bill has to pass in the House of Commons and then the Senate before it gets royal assent and becomes law. Bills that passed last week included Christia Freeland's first budget bill, which would extend COVID-19 benefits, a bill to ban conversion therapy, although conservatives were deeply split on it, the controversial Bill C-10, the one that would regulate streaming giants, passed at 1.30 a.m. on a Tuesday night, and a bill that legalizes single-event sports betting. Canada's 43rd Parliament was weird for so many reasons. COVID rules for one. We saw an MP vote from a boat just last week, and another appeared naked and urinated in a coffee cup in two separate virtual appearances. And there were other toxic things. But it seems like everyone's done with it. Minority parliaments, based on my understanding, don't seem to last longer than two years. Well, it's nearly been two years for this Liberal government. Do you think it's time for an election? This is a very interesting one, considering the text message, which I know we're going to talk about later. I really think that uh, JT and his crew have decided that they're going to call one, but they're going to make sure that everybody does, in fact, get their pension. And it's after October. You know, minority governments don't usually last, but there's no reason to call an election right now unless JT really thinks that he will come again with the win, which I don't think he will have much problems with. People could fight me on that. Uh, Everybody knows how I feel about him, but I still think at this particular time, he will come away with the win. Um, And it might be a a good time for him to call an election, uh, to not wait any longer for him to trip over his own feet and mess it up anymore. So yeah, two years is good. He's going to make sure that all of his friends get their pensions and hopefully come out with the win. Selena, can you explain the pension part to us? Because, you know, we all haven't been in Parliament Hill like you have. (laughs) Yeah, the pension part is interesting because if from the day that you're elected, you stay as an MP for six years, you get a lifetime pension. And so October of 2021, if they stay in parliament until that day and an election is called after that day, everyone, Catherine McKenna, who was elected for the first time in 2015, and Kate Young, all these people that said that they're going to retire will get their full lifetime pension after October 2021. I think Selena's probably correct in, in both the, the pension analysis and the fact that, yeah, all signs are kind of pointing to an election. 
between the sort of high profile retirement of Catherine McKenna and you've got veteran MPs uh, retire here on the East Coast. Jack Harris, sort of longtime uh, NDP foreign affairs critic, is stepping down. His sort of like virtually guaranteed seat in St. John's East. Wayne Eastern PEI, who I think has been around like literally forever, is also not stepping down. So you've got all these sort of like longtime fixtures who are kind of like guaranteed re-election, starting to reevaluate where things are at. You know, as we've seen, the pandemic has sort of like had Trudeau's fortunes like up and down um, as things have played out. People were happy initially with the response, and then things started to flag over the wee controversy, and then, and then like started to flag again with the vaccine rollout. But now that the vaccine rollout is going like good, and uh, you know we're all ready to have like a double vaccinated hot summer or whatever. Literally, I guess in the case of the West Coast, it's definitely in their best interest to like call that election and clinch it while everybody's feeling really sort of stoked about like how things are going back to normal, quote unquote. Before, you know, like people start really paying attention to what's actually happening in this country again, which is usually bad for the <laughs> governing party. I do sort of fully expect them to try and go as, as quickly as possible. I would have picked September, but after now thinking about the pensions piece, yeah, a date in October would make the most sense, assuming, you know. November. Yeah, I guess sometime after that cutoff point where, you know, everybody does get their pension, so he doesn't end up making a whole bunch of enemies. But at the same time, historically, Trudeau has not necessarily shied away from that whether out of calculation or ineptitude. Over the weekend, I informed the Prime Minister and the President of the Liberal Party that I won't be seeking re-election as a Member of Parliament for Ottawa Centre whenever the election happens. It was a difficult decision, but it's the right one for me and my family, and it's the right time to make it. Jason, I do want to talk about Catherine McKenna because her retiring is kind of a big effing deal because she's been one of the government's most high-profile cabinet members, first as the Minister of Environment and Climate Change and now as the Minister of Infrastructure and Communities. Every single thing the Liberals have put out when it comes to climate change policy has been steerheaded by by this woman, who's also become a target for it. She's She's been one of the most attacked people online and offline for this. What do you take from her retirement and from her announcement? I take that she's probably exhausted by so much of this. Politics can be a grinder for anybody, especially in this age of social media and gladiator sport partisanship but especially for people who are not white men in politics. And when you are a well-spoken, strong woman in politics, especially one in a controversial file like environment, you get targeted like hell. And I should, we saw this in Alberta, too. Uh, there was Environment Minister Shannon Phillips when uh, Rachel Notley's NDP were in power. And she was actually a minister at the same time that Catherine McKenna were, um, both bringing in carbon taxes on, in large part, a very reluctant uh, populace. And not only was she scorned and treated terribly on social media, but Shannon Phillips was actually targeted and surveilled by Lethbridge police in her southern Alberta riding. But my point is that people, especially environment, you know, it was a very loaded, toxic emotional uh, thing when you're talking about taxing carbon and there's been so much politics stepped up in it. It's almost a shame that she had, it's like she had to be moved for, it seems like for Justin Trudeau to think that he could get the environment file taken more seriously as they moved carbon tax to $150 a ton. 
I think there was probably a calculus in there that your carbon tax might be taken more seriously if it was introduced by a white man. Mm -hmm. And uh, that says something pretty nasty about politics. She's been far less prominent as infrastructure minister. She doesn't make the same headlines. Infrastructure minister is this wonderful check-cutting, nice, happy announcementing ministry where you don't make a ton of decisions. You don't handle a ton of controversial files. Like, I can't think of the last controversy or last time we've really spoken about her in major headlines even though this is a post-pandemic spending spree and there are so many expenditures that she's making. She still cheerleads a lot on climate change, but it must have been exhausting and she still gets it. Every time she pokes her head up over the transom, she gets fire, either from conservatives, social media freaks or whatever. So I get that she needs to step down and somebody else can probably talk about uh, the interesting political calculus of having Ottawa Centre the writing suddenly up for grabs. It's interesting that you brought up the fact that she moved aside to finalize the carbon pricing bill. And now there's this kind of swirl that has been swirling around, around Mark Carney coming in. And I don't know what the conversations are. I'm not going to pretend to infer or make any inference about what conversations could have happened around Minister McKenna stepping down. But the fact that once again, you step down and there's this, oh, this just great opportunity for another white man to step into a place of an absolutely brilliant woman being in a particular portfolio or in a particular writing just seems not so great for me in a post-2020 world. I've also been annoyed by all this election speculation, but specifically the speculation that she might be replaced by Mark Carney, because we're talking about a minister who's done a lot over the past six years, and suddenly everyone's just obsessed about the former governor of the Bank of Canada and the Bank of England because he might be our lord and savior. Drew, why are we so obsessed with this dude? I don't know. Like the Mark Carney thing is almost like kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy and that like <laughs> people have just been talking about it for so long. Like when is Mark Carney going to run? Which has sort of just created this like Mark Carney is going to run and he's going to be amazing because everybody's been talking about how, like, how amazing he would be to do it. In terms of like liberal messiah figures, he checks most of the boxes, right? As a, you know, major international central banker figure, he's got the sort of technocratic side. He recently published that book about how we're going to do like capitalism, but nice now and save nature with it. I know like at least in Newfoundland and Labrador, there's a lot of conversation about a green transition and like seizing all this sort of like international investment for low carbon fossil fuel development and stuff like that, which seems to be the tack that the federal government is probably going to pursue as well. And Carney seems to be kind of like a leading voice in that conversation as well. The truth is that they probably will be able to instrumentalize him a little bit better to to push some of this stuff than they maybe could have done with someone like Catherine McKenna, just based on the fact that uh, political sexism characterizes politics in this country. Not only is Mark Carney a throwback in that he was the former governor of the Bank of Canada, but also he's this great retro dude who is a star candidate in an age where the star candidate no longer exists. And I I see uh, Salida's rolling her eyes on it, and I kind of roll my eyes at it too, because, first of all, there are no star candidates anymore because nobody wants to be a politician in their right mind anymore because of the aforementioned meat grinder and nasty crap that people face and the thankless task of it and the fact that it can toxify your uh, post uh, politics options. Uh, So there's no real reason to do politics. Plus the fact that if you do, unless you're going to be leader, you're just going to be a stooge for the all-controlling prime minister. But, you know, in elections past, there were CEOs of major companies, big television stars, leaders in civic society running who were star candidates. Could you name 
another person who's potentially running or is running for office that is not a current politician in the camp. I mean, even the people who are prominent uh, figures. I mean, it's interesting to hear Selena talk about this uh, white man replacing a woman. Do you guys remember who replaced uh, Bill Morneau, the last big white man to fall from grace in Justin Trudeau's cabinet? Marcy Ion, who was actually a CTV anchor for many years on Newsnet, a very prominent black woman, and who I haven't heard from because the age of Star Canada is largely over and the age where they are, they speak out, they're prominent figures is also not really existent. So the old guard media and political class is very excited about the old style star candidate that is Mark Carney. And it's actually hard to get more starry than a guy who ran the monetary system for two of the G7 countries. But isn't that disappointing, though? Let's actually take up what you said in 2015 and do politics differently. To be cynical about it, I think Justin Trudeau tried uh, fresh fresh people with new perspectives and bold perspectives in 2015. And look what happened. Well, exactly. He got yourself <laughs> and Jane Philpott and Jody Wilson-Raybould. And they He's had, like, never again. And, and they kept on banging that independent thought alarm. And uh, that got really worrisome for the governing class. And, you know, if there's one thing we know about Trudeau is that he's much more of a classic scheming politician type than he seemed to be in 2015. So this is what fascinates me and also annoys me about election speculation. It it often seems to be about the savior complex, right? Like, how, how do we save Canada from whatever's coming next? And Mark Carney is part of that. But it's also about choices, like what direction do we want to take this country? And a lot has been written in recent weeks and days about how this liberal government survived this unprecedented year of parliament because of backing from the Bloc Quebecois and the New Democrats on their key agenda items. And Aaron O'Toole is now actively using this as a talking point and saying that Canadians only have two choices. Four parties on the left, the Liberals, the NDP, the Greens and the Bloc Quebecois give the illusion of choice and debate. But there is no such thing. It's an agenda of four shades of red. That is a fascinating election ploy. I would think that Aaron O'Toole would like to have the votes split up among the Bloc Québécois and the Green Party and the NDP and the Liberal and not say it's all it's red or it's us. Because if he's saying that, then he is telling people vote red or it's us. Um, he may have noticed, but the traditional conservative ceiling is around 40 percent of the vote. Uh, 60% of the people do not want conservative, and um, that seems to be oscillating and growing. In some places, it's very high. The conservatives are doing dismally in Ontario. So if O'Toole is trying to paint everybody as liberal, then he's defining the alternative. And also, I think he might focus uh, progressive minds on the fact that he might win, and he thinks he can win. A lot of conservatives have, uh, have counted him out. But uh, if, if it becomes a, a conservative versus liberal election, um, they lose. Keep in mind, in the last uh, couple decades that the conservatives had a majority was when the progressive vote was completely split. The liberal vote collapsed and people started voting Jack Layden in the NDP. That's how they got their majority. Full disclosure, I actually, because I'm a Durham region resident, I actually sent a message saying, look, somebody needs to advise this guy a little bit better. Like, I will consult. Conservatives have bread. You could pay me. You could afford me. But like, who is who is telling you to tell people, pick the reds or the blue? Like, what? Don't you want to split the vote? Who's advising you, like, after the mass grave is found to have another summit. Every time we put something out, I send a message to like Leslie Lewis. I'm like, who is advising your leader? Like you need to get rid of all of them and start with somebody new. 
I do want to look ahead. Jason, you made an interesting point about how Aaron O'Toole's messaging uh, of all four parties might actually work against him moving forward. But I could say the same thing about the liberals, right? In in the past week, in Parliament at least, they've been very careful with what they're leaving open-ended. For example, the liberals decided to offer their own recommendations on military sexual misconduct as opposed to allowing for a complete nonpartisan report. This was a major deal because nothing in the report talks about accountability, and I assume that's because they don't want to take anything damaging into the campaign trail. And then at the same time, they also introduced a new bill with just two days of parliament left, Bill C-36, which is supposed to tackle hate propaganda, crimes, and hate speech, which is also a huge deal. And they've just tabled it, but that's all they've been able to do because Parliament is now off on summer vacation. Selena's already predicting a November 2021 election. But what are we in store for until November? Like, what can we expect from all the parties? And and what kind of things should we be looking out for? I guess we're looking for what's the what's the post-pandemic roadmap? Are we going to get something interesting or exciting from the Liberals? Like, what more can they promise? Do they? Does it seem like a party that still has a lot of ideas? They have a lot of unfinished check marks. For crying out loud, we still have the uh, ban on donating uh, blood if you're a gay male. We still have the unfinished business on reconciliation, on uh, military sexual harassment and assault. There's so many boxes to check. Um, there's seeing through the environmental agenda. I don't see much changing on that. Are they going to be, in some ways, the small conservative party that's just trying to keep intact what they have, keep the momentum going, be grateful to us that you're uh, doubly vaxxed and our economy hasn't uh, completely fallen through a hellhole? You know, we'll pay some sort of weird lip service to the fact that nobody under 40 uh, without a trust fund can afford a house. Now, there'll be all these promises. Are the conservatives going to have any vision? Are the conservatives actually going to promise anything exciting or interesting? Does anybody care? And the interesting thing is going back to the timing of the election, because we, I guess, have to do that if we're talking about election speculation. And I, I totally respect what uh, Selena said, but I think there's a lot of incentive for the Liberals to go before before October, maybe in September or an early October vote, um, because the more you have the election hang over in August, the less people are paying attention. And that can be potentially really good. If the Liberals just want people to reward them for how happy and how nice the summer has been, um, and not really get into the nitty-gritty of issues, not wait longer for any uh, controversies to pop up. You want to go early. You want to catch the uh, conservatives in a bit of a weak spot. You want to catch uh, the Greens in whatever kind of disarray they're going to be in over the next uh, several weeks. And you don't want uh, to give uh, Jagmeet Singh and the NDP time to get momentum. Going early uh, could really benefit them if you want it to be an election about nothing. I just think that the next little while is going to look like the Liberals apologizing to a couple more groups, the Conservatives tripping and falling over their feet, the Greens eating their leader, eating their young, eating their kin, and then eating everything else that's in their way, and the NDP remaining irrelevant because they have really great ideas that the Liberals will continue to steal. So like Justin Trudeau gave this speech to the St. John's Board of Trade a few weeks ago that I kind of interpreted as like this was a test run for the stump speech we're going to get. And I think this is what it gave me the impression that like an election will probably happen sooner than later because the pitch was basically like, you know, we got you guys through the pandemic. It was really good. Look at all the great programs we did. The economy's going to be fine. My conservative opponents would have totally fucked it up. It would have been horrible. You do not want to vote for them. You know, if they had been in charge, it would have been a disaster. And like that argument really only works as long as like we're still coming out of the pandemic. So that's where people's heads are at. And I think that's where we're going to be for the next 
couple months, right? But if the recovery doesn't turn out to be the way that they originally pitched it, that stump speech, that argument kind of goes a little south. So I think they're incentivized to go a bit faster there. And I mean, the conservatives, like, again, yeah, who is advising Aaron O'Toole? I think they really seem hung up on the, like, culture war stuff, which... Sure, I guess works for that sort of like really committed like 30% of voters who will like eat that stuff up. But in terms of like, yeah, this may actually not be a great year to like die on the hill of like, Canada's amazing though, don't shit talk it at all, everything is fine. Because like clearly there are a number of like really serious issues that we as as a country have to sort of come to terms with. And I think the public appetite is there to talk about like real shit for the first time that I've ever seen in, you know, the adult life that I've spent paying attention to this stuff. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. Yes, Jason. What is your very first point of order on the backbench? I was going to tee off on Alberta's uh, imbecilic equalization referendum, but I'll do that another time because it's uh, not coming till October. But in the meantime, on the subject of liberals suddenly having various keenness to regulate types of speech, hate speech and uh, communications, I'd like to propose two phrases that we ban from the political lexicon. Oh, I'm intrigued. The first Election-style speeches. All reporters talk about a, when somebody's making a speech, it's an election-style speech. No fucking shit. They're politicians. What other kind of speech are they going to make? Every speech to party faithful, um, especially during a campaign or in the run-up to a campaign, is an election-style speech. The other one that we should ban from political lexicon is hand-picked. We talk about hand-picked star candidates or hand-picked cabinet ministers. You can't pick a cabinet minister otherwise unless you machine sort them or randomly draw them. Every cabinet minister will be hand-picked. So let's please retire those very, very dumb, bad phrases if we are going to regulate speech. Jason, that was not a point of order, but thank you for that semantic lesson. Point of order, point of order, Madam Speaker. What's your point of order, Selena? I would just like to say that my colleague, um, Jason, and I apologize for using his name in the house, used unparliamentary language. He said, (laughs) D-U-M-B. It's almost as bad as F-A-R-T. But no, my point of order is related to something that you said earlier, Madam Speaker, where you said that Mark Carney was the Lord and Savior. And I, I want to just point out that that is incorrect, that our Lord and Savior will always be Bill Murnau. Um, also not a point of order, but but thank you for that fact check, Selena. We appreciate it here at the Backbench. I appreciate that. You appreciate it. So the number that we all can't get out of our heads is 751. That's the number of additional unmarked graves found at a residential school at Cowessis First Nation in Saskatchewan last Thursday And that brings the total number in recent weeks to 1,323. The urgency to achieve reconciliation has never been greater, nor has it been more lackluster. 
Canadian politics is still going through the motions. Bill C-15, which forced the federal government to put all laws in line with the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, finally passed last week. If you want to learn more about that, we got into it in our last episode with Romeo Saganash, the former NDP MP who wrote the first iteration of the bill. Bill C-8 also passed, finally incorporating Indigenous treaties into Canada's citizenship oath on the Liberal government's third attempt. Both of these bills were demanded by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in 2015. But unfortunately, politicians are still letting us down. Let's take Carolyn Bennett, for example, the Minister of Crown Indigenous Affairs, texted Jody Wilson-Raybould at 4.33 a.m. on the day we learned of the 751 unmarked graves. And this is apparently the first time the two have communicated since 2018. Bennett chose this moment to respond to Wilson Rebolt's tweet asking Trudeau for, quote, concrete transformative action, which he promised in 2018 instead of an election. In response, Bennett texted one word, pension, question mark. And Selena has already explained to us why that matters. MPs have to serve at least six years before qualifying for their pension. Jody Wilson-Raybould called Bennett out herself and tweeted the text and called it racist and misogynist. That reflects notion that Indigenous people are lazy and only want money. Bennett has since apologized. Regardless of how high school this all sounds coming from Canadian politician, it was one example of failed communications and actions over reconciliation that couldn't come at a worse possible time than right now when the country is watching its history be rightfully torn into shreds. Has this permanently damaged Carolyn Bennett's ability to serve as the Minister of Crown Indigenous Affairs? I think Carolyn Bennett's capacity to serve as Minister of Crown Indigenous Affairs was already tarnished. For this to be a topic of conversation where we're talking about pensions instead of doing what is actually right, by not only these children, but for so many injustices against Indigenous peoples of this country, is a crime chain. The cognitive dissonance that is required to say pension, space, question mark, even the grammar was poor on that, which I had to notice that there was a space on there. These kinds of things, they hurt in a way that I'm not sure, and I'm hoping listeners could understand the pain that I felt looking at that message and just boiling everything that Jody wants to do in terms of a, a rights framework for Indigenous people, ensuring that the work is done when it comes to accountability, which is what you're supposed to do, that she just takes that message and boils it down to a trope of being lazy, of only caring about the money. You know, there's a lot of things that Carolyn Bennett ought to be ashamed of, But if the government, if Trudeau doesn't set a very clear tone from the top as a response to this absolutely disgusting message, then everybody, every person on that government side may have been accountable to to that tweet. So it seems like Trudeau's already set the tone, right? So Prime Minister Justin Trudeau says that he spoke with Bennett last Friday and knows her heart, that's a quote, and the effort she's put in over years on this file. He said that they both understand there's even more work to do. He said, I know we will do it together. Meanwhile, lots of people are calling for Bennett's resignation, including the Union of British Columbia Indian Chiefs. Jason, what does it mean that our prime minister is standing by Bennett at a time like this? 
It actually goes back to our last topic and how election year mindset warps everything among certain people, among the nakedly political. It, it struck me that it's just what she thinks about, that nobody can make a political statement without just thinking about themselves first and about politics first, because that is, uh, can be for many longtime politicians the modus operandi. And so it's that for her that she sees any political statement by a politician and thinks pension, they must be in it for themselves somehow. And for Justin Trudeau, it's I can't remove, I can't be critical of a cabinet minister, even if it is the right thing to do, even if it is important, because we are in an election year and I cannot show weakness, uh, which is probably the same reason that he's standing by the ineffectualness of Sejan, his uh, defense minister. I think this is a really unfortunate focus for him to have to have and an issue because this is so far from anything to do with reconciliation among anything to do with the terrible uh, trauma and re-traumatizing we are seeing in Saskatchewan in British Columbia and are about to see in so many other First Nations across the country in this this moment of reckoning all that uh, certain politicians and government can think of is elections is political calculus is tragic and it deepens the tragedy that we already have It's interesting because when I saw the text, I was also reminded that Carolyn Bennett abstained from the NDP motion for the government to quit fighting Indigenous children in court and to adopt the Jordan's principle, which mandates prioritizing Indigenous children's care over debates about whether we have the resources to do this. And, you know, in the days since, Minister Bennett has said she's going to wear an orange shirt on Canada Day and that the government is celebrating the passage of the two bills I mentioned at the top of this conversation. So, Drew, on a scale of one to ten, how do we rate the Liberals' progress with reconciliation? Uh, you almost want to give it like a two or three in that, you know, it, it you can't give it a one because currently, I mean, that's sort of like that's the space kind of occupied by like a lot of conservative voices that are sort of just like denying anything bad has happened in Canadian history ever, right? Or that, you know, it's been totally misunderstood or that John A. Macdonald was still a great man despite, you know, the active architecture of genocide. It's like drunk corruption trains guy, right? So like, anyway, it boggles the mind. But yeah, at the same time, like this, this is, you know, like you have a government that like has continuously promised to do so much for reconciliation in Indigenous people since 2015 and it's barely done any of it. And now you have like, the minister in charge of this sort of like responding to a tweet asking for like serious action to like address the genocide that has been unearthed in this country with like, you know, the most sort of like cynical fucking statement you can make in politics. And then the prime minister come on and be like, well, I know her heart. It was okay. Like, it's crazy. Genuinely really disheartening, right? Because like, yes, I think maybe for many of us, there was sort of like a flicker of hope in maybe 2015 that like maybe things will actually be different now, but they're not. But they're still, you know, like, because they can point the fingers at the other guys being like, well, they're worse. And we show up with the orange shirts and we're, you know, like, happy to acknowledge that bad things may have happened. It's, uh, yeah, no, it's real depressing. I, there's not, there's nothing else to say, really. We're recording this the week of Canada Day, which many want cancelled in the wake of the findings over, you know, the over 1,000 Indigenous graves that have been found. Conservative leader Erin O'Toole has made it clear that he doesn't agree with, quote, activists asking to cancel Canada's Day celebrations. I'm concerned that injustices in our past or in our present are too often 
seized upon by a small group of activist voices who use it to attack the very idea of Canada itself. He later claimed he was the only person, this is a quote, he was the only person running to be prime minister who is proud of Canada. Meanwhile, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh took a more both-sides approach in an interview with The Line, saying that celebrating Canada Day doesn't mean ignoring the problems. Quote, it means acknowledging things that are victories, the things that are positive, and then also acknowledging the problems and fixing them. So I have a question for everyone on the backbench. What does Canada Day and the politicization of Canada Day mean to all of you in the wake of all of this? Um, I mean, personally, I'm... I'm not in the mood to celebrate Canada Day this year. I'm not going to say goodbye forever, fuck Canada Day, but it's my sister-in-law's birthday. I'll celebrate that. I'll be with my family. I'll take the day off. But I, I feel the glaring fact of genocide looms so much larger over anything worth celebrating this year. But I, I also, just to Singh's point, what I love about Canada Day is going out to parks downtown or whatever in Calgary and seeing what Canada Day means to especially new Canadians people who came here and Canada has been a beacon of hope my mother came here as a refugee um to Halifax after the after the, the the genocide that was the holocaust she was born in a displaced persons camp and came across there um Canada gave my family shelter it gave a lot of family shelter and that's that's very meaningful and very valuable and um we continue to do that Canada has been great and been shitty. And saying that you're really ticked off at Canada and you think that Canada's genocide is not saying you hate Canada. It can be an expression of love. When you love a country, when you love what you've been given by a country, you can also hate it and express... You don't hate it, you can express concern that you fucked up. But you did something so grievous and you have to confront that and you have to reckon with that and reconcile that. Um, it doesn't mean that everything you do is shitty, um, but it meant that this is so profoundly shitty that it casts a pall on everything else. And you have to deal with that. I've always had a lot of complicated feelings about Canada today. I mean, so like I'm a Newfoundlander in, in Newfoundland, July 1st, well before we ever became part of Canada, was always celebrated as Memorial Day because it's the day that, you know, July 1st, 1916 is when uh, the Battle of Beaumont Hamill happened. You had about a thousand, you know, Newfoundlanders go over the top, I think, was about 800, 900, and only 68 answered roll call the next day, which to me is always sort of like, it's been a day of thinking about, you know, like the fucking crime that is imperialist war and like the waste of human life and all that. It's, it's a really like heavy day. So like, you know, we take the morning to sort of do all the war memorial stuff. And then like, it's always been really hard for me to then go and like put on the fucking red and white, like hat from Dollarama or whatever, and then like go celebrate Canada. And so there's that part of it that's made it complicated but especially now i mean like my feeling about this is that like canada is a really complicated country and like fundamentally like the canada that was founded in the late 19th century as like a white settler state and for the northern races that's a really fucked up country and i don't think it is ever worth celebrating and i think like there is this like one of the stories of canadian history over the last like 150 years has been like the nation trying to like come to terms with like what it was founded as and like what it actually wants to be. The idea of Canada as the world's great experiment in like true cosmopolitan like liberalism is like a beautiful thing and like that is worth celebrating and fighting for. But it's only something that's come about because of people fighting for it tooth and nail against like all these countervailing forces. Now we finally do have to acknowledge that like listen like 
Dominion Day, as certain reactionaries would like to call it, is a profoundly fucked up concept. And a lot of the things that this country was founded on are profoundly fucked up ideas. And like, we should not be celebrating them. We should be like working to subvert them. And like the beautiful thing about a country like Canada is that you can you can do that. But the sort of like slavish devotion to this like patriotic idea, like, I don't know, man, like there is not enough like red and white bunting from the dollar store to like paper over the fucking horrors that have been unearthed in the past few months. Anyway, suffice it to say, yeah, I, uh, I don't think Canada today is off permanently for people. And I think obviously like there are beautiful things about this country that are worth holding dear. But uh, yeah, this year in particular, uh, no, it's still it's fucking Memorial Day for me in more ways than one, to be frank. 100 percent. I think Jason and Drew, you hit it right on the head. Like this is not about, you know, forever. This is about leaders having an opportunity to use this moment to say, look, Canada Day, July 1st, we're going to do things a little bit different because we need to honor something that, that you know, the, the traumas of the last few months and, and not just the last few months of the legacy of trauma that is this country. Can we not do that? Can we not have the empathetic courage to do something differently because we know that people are hurting, that people are unaware uh, you, you hear people talking about how shocked they are because they they didn't they didn't read the truth and reconciliation report. So okay, so let's take time to unpack that. Let's take time to make sure that people understand uh, residential schools. They to understand that that we still have an Indian Act. To understand the two hundred and six years of slavery that existed in this country. Let's take some time on this day, this Canada Day of twenty twenty one, to do something real. And not to continue to whitewash our situation because, you know, Canada isn't all that bad. Well, fuck, nobody's saying that, but has some real shit gone down in the last few months that people are completely unaware of? Yes. And so this is the time to unearth the truth. And then we could get to some reconciliation. And if our leaders are not willing to to stand in that this, this is upsetting. That's The Backbench. We'll be back in two weeks. You can write us at backbench at canadaland.com or find us on Twitter at backbenchcast. If you like what you hear, please follow, subscribe, rate us. I'm Fatma Sayed, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed. Uh, Jason, thank you for making your debut. Where can people find you? They can find me in the pages of McLean's Magazine, and I tweet far too often at Markasoff. Selena, where are you at? Um, everybody can find me on all forms of social media at I am Selena CC. I am C-L-I-N-A-C-C. And Drew, where do people follow your election coverage? <laughs> well, um, you can probably find me tweeting too much about it at Drewfinland, like Drewfinland, but with my name. Um, or you can check us out at the independent.ca, um, Newfoundland and Labrador's uh, leading digital media outlet. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our executive producer is Kevin Sexton. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Please take care of each other. Thank you for listening. Hey. 
Hey, it's Matea, reminding you that this show cannot be made without you. If you've been thinking about becoming a Canada Land supporter, we're having a pretty great sale right now. You'll get premium ad-free feeds of all Canada Land shows, discounts on merch from our store, and exclusive bonus episodes, like a behind-the-scenes tour of the federal budget lockup, more of Boris Johnson's trip to Canada, and of course, more of us yapping about what's hot in politics right now. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special offer for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.